cookies and lasso. There will be spoilers and possibly chocolate chips. October 13th, 2021. The inspiration, the chase. A lot of people are afraid to say what they want. That's why they don't get what they want. Madonna. Do you struggle to know what you want? I do. And not just in the big picture of my life. If you ask me what I want for dinner, I will freeze. I will not be able to tell you. That is a direct result of abuse, yes, but it's also because of two other things. One, choices are hard. There are studies that say the more choices we have, the lower our happiness. Sifting through all the many things that you can have, that you can do, that you can be is fucking exhausting. Ian and I hate choosing, so we have a deal. One of us whittles the available choices down to three options, and the other one chooses between those three options. It is amazingly helpful. Two, how can I know what I want? Well, it's still in the territory of the imagination. Look, the fantasy of marrying Prince Charming and living in the castle may seem nice, but only because all I'm seeing is the good parts, the freedom that wealth provides, and the undying love of a prince. But there's a cost. You trade your privacy, your community. You got to give some severe side-eye to the presumption that it's safe to marry someone you hardly know because he's a prince. What I'm saying is, once you're in the actual reality of that choice, it could suck. How can I know what I want if it's something I haven't experienced yet? Because of that, many of us live in the realm of negative or absent goals, only knowing what we don't want. And that means that we don't learn what to chase. We only learn what to run away from. In fiction, I tell writers to set a positive or present goal for their protagonists because the chase is where the growth is. I think that's true in life as well. Some things you may genuinely not know if you want them, and that's okay. But if you can pick one positive present goal to chase, what might that be? The fat orange cat, when you give a protagonist a cookie. Give someone a cookie in your story, but make sure it's a cookie with meaning. It's a rare recipe or it's a peace offering. Or the new football coach is trying to connect with the team owner by bringing her a pink box full of the world's most amazing shortbread. Or maybe it's poisoned. Oh my God, I just had a visceral reaction to that idea. Can you imagine a bigger violation of trust than to poison a warm, gooey chocolate chip cookie? The betrayal, the audacity. I cannot even with that. Give someone a cookie. See if it kills them. The trope. Prologues. Last week, we talked about one of my least favorite writing devices, the flashback. That said, there are times when a flashback works. The same goes for prologues. Look, I know. If you've been with me for a while, you have heard me give the what for to prologues a number of times. And epilogues, but we'll talk about that another time. Prologue is similar to flashback in that it is often examining an event from the past, except it comes at the beginning, delaying the start of the actual story. This isn't a problem if the prologue does some narrative lifting, meaning that what happens in the prologue is directly connected to the main narrative, either mechanically, what happens in the prologue is essential to the main narrative, or thematically. The important part of that is that it's essential. That means that if you remove the prologue, is the story fundamentally weaker? If so, you're good to go. Keep your damn prologue. 
What we want to avoid as writers is putting in a prologue because we want the reader to know something expository, or we want to show off this amazing scene we wrote that takes place before the book starts. That's discovery writing. It's important for us as writers, but not for the reader of the story. The thing to remember about prologues is that they're not always a misstep. Just be sure you're looking at yours critically. The question, advancing your career. Okay, nothing came in this week that I've been asked to answer here. So once again, to the Reddit All Random Journal Prompt Generator. What is something you need to overcome in your career to advance to the next level? Interesting question, especially since I'm at the verge of a change in my career. I've already addressed the fact that I'm shit at the ask, but I'm trying to do better. So after that, I need to understand my own value. In a conversation with my beloved this weekend, I realized that I do value calculus on everything I say. So if what I'm about to say has no apparent value to someone other than myself, I don't say it. That's why I've always needed a blog or a podcast to talk about my shit. I don't journal. That only benefits me, even though it involves no one else, and my journaling is no inconvenience to anyone else. That's how bad I am with this. Even in therapy, I start every session with, Carrie, how are you doing? So bottom line, I'm trying to rethink my sense of my own value in my personal life, and I think I need to rethink it professionally, too. I'm happy to do everything for free, but if I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to quit my job, I have to know that my work has value and that asking people to pay for some of it isn't a bad thing. So it comes back to the ask. Huh. Anyway, thank you to those of you who are on the paid tier here at Dear Writer. And this is where I ask those of you who are not to consider it. God, that's uncomfortable. I clearly have more work to do. But just so as you know, I finished my book this week and on Saturday, all paid subscribers are getting access to an excerpt. The practical. It is now safe to lasso. Like so many people right now, I've been keeping up with the new episodes of Ted Lasso as they came out, even though I hate watching a show from week to week because I wasn't a patient person before binging became a thing, and now I'm completely ruined. But I just discovered season one right before season two came out, so there was no way I was going to have the patience to wait until season two was done before I watched it. Before I get into my spoiler-laden thoughts, this is your warning to stop reading if you haven't seen season two. Okay. At first, I wasn't sure about this season because it seemed like it had a story and then it seemed like a let's watch a lot of people being happy epilogue. And I know a lot of people like epilogues and no shade if you do, but people being happy isn't a story. People being challenged is story. I'm all for people being happy. I just don't want to, you know, watch it. But then it got to the Nate going dark storyline and Ted's struggle with accepting Sharon and getting help with his mental health issues. And that was all good. But before we get to that, let's start with the smaller storylines. Roy and Keeley were a lot of let's watch people be happy for most of the season. I mean, yeah, sure, they have their little quibbles, but nothing hugely worrisome. But when she told him about Jamie at the photo shoot, that seemed significant. Like she was trying to tell him that their relationship maybe wasn't what she wanted. But then at the end of the season, when she turned down his six-week vacation, she didn't say it was over. She said they were still together. So I have no read on exactly where Keeley is. Rebecca and Sam was a bad idea. It's tough that she's his boss. It's a steep power differential, and it's hard to get past when a relationship is young. Is this relationship worth sidelining your career? But the bottom line is, he's 21. 
I think Sam is wonderful, and if he was maybe Roy's age and quit the job to be with Rebecca, it probably would have been fine. But even if he wasn't working for her, he's 21. I know the it's legal thing tends to be a line for adult versus child, but in reality, it's not that simple. There are some very mature 21-year-olds, and I think Sam qualifies for that. I might get over the youth thing by itself. Actually, I would get over that way faster than the boss thing. But the two combined was just way too toxic. And the fact that the show didn't see that textually was a problem. They nodded at it, but as though it was a minor problem, not a big problem. I can absolutely see what any woman would see in Sam because he is an extraordinary human being. And I don't believe Rebecca was predatory in her behavior toward him, but it's just not okay. It doesn't matter that it's a woman in power, and it doesn't matter that Rebecca probably wouldn't abuse her power with Sam. She doesn't need to abuse the power. The presence of that complete power is already too much. It's on the powered person to respect the power differential. I put this on Rebecca, and I like her a lot, so that sucks. I loved Sharon's arc and her friendship with Ted. That was really lovely. I love that we made a space for therapists to also need therapy because human. And I loved when she said, are you good at your job? Because I'm even better at mine. God, I love a love story between a person and their work. And finally, Nate's descent into darkness. It was so sad, but so well done and well seeded. I didn't even realize it was happening until we were already well into it. I love Nate in season one, but sometimes people are only sweet because they haven't been given the power to not be sweet. You see who a person really is when they're given the option to behave however they want. And what was revealed about Nate as he gained more power and prestige was heartbreaking. I love a redemption arc so much. And man, I hope that's what we get with him next season. Leave your thoughts in the comments. I'd love to chat about it. Everything, L. That smashing sound. It's my deadline. October 16, 2021. Dear friggin' writer! I did it. It's done. I finished the House Story Works book and it's in edits now and oh my god, it's done. So this week, I'm gonna cheat. Instead of writing a dear writer, I'm going to share with you my final and very short chapter, Magic and Craft. I'll be back next week, don't worry. But right now, I'm gonna take a nap. Everything, L. Chapter 7, Magic and Craft. That's it, y'all. Those are the basics of how story works. There's loads more to learn and understand, but in this book, you have everything you need to be able to start building basic stories that work. But we're not quite done, because there's one more thing you need to understand. This is going to be the shortest chapter in this book, but it's possibly the most important, so listen up. What I've taught you is craft. It's the structure and the plot and the character building and the conflict that keeps everything in the air. And that's all important. Clearly, I think so, as I've dedicated my life to understanding it and teaching it to you. But it's not the whole game. It's not even most of the game. Magic is the game. And craft lives in service to magic. What is magic? It's like spirituality. It can be hard to describe, but you know it when you feel it. In the simplest terms, magic is the part of you that nestles into your stories and gives them life. Magic is how you see the universe, what you believe to be true, what you believe to be worthwhile. Magic is how you use a string of lies to tell the truth, and magic is what you believe the truth to be. Magic is your sense of humor, your philosophical perspective, your take on right and wrong. Magic is what delights you, what scares you, what excites you, what breaks your heart. It's what you care about and what your readers care about. It's what it all means. 
and it's why the craft exists, to make your magic come through loud and clear. Alignment. Some writers are aligned toward craft, and some are aligned toward magic. For magic-aligned writers, craft is the boring part. In order for the play in their head to go on, a stage needs to be built, but they're not interested in the stage. Craft is predictable and boring. It's trade work. It's union dues. It's drudgery. Magic-aligned writers want to get right to the magic, and so they say, if magic is the good stuff, the important stuff, why do I have to bother with all this craft, building the stage to code or whatever? That's not fun. I'd argue that it can be fun, that it indeed is fun, but it's also hard work and it doesn't come naturally to everyone. For some writers, their very nature resists it. Even for craft-aligned writers who absolutely love having something to put their backs up against when dealing with the terrifying everything that is creation, it's a lot of work. Believe it or not, I'm a magic-aligned writer. I've never really enjoyed the craft part. That's why when I sold a two-book contract to Warner Books in 2003 off a book I wrote entirely fueled by magic and I had no idea how story actually worked, I dedicated myself to learning how it worked. And that's how we got here. But back to the craft-aligned writers. For them, craft is the whole game. It's rules, it's reason, it's a thing they can rationally understand when they're scared or panicked. Magic has nothing to do with rationality or reason, and it's terrifying for some writers. Craft is not vulnerable. It's math. You can show your work and see where you went wrong and know what needs fixing. If you focus on craft, there's a plan. If it's broken, you can just go back to the blueprint and fix it. Magic is vulnerability. Not your characters, but yours. Magic reveals who you are, what you think, how you see the world. And some people might not like it. It is you. And if they don't like your magic, they don't like you. It's goddamn terrifying. That said, I would argue that if you're doing your magic right, some people shouldn't like it. If everyone likes what you do, chances are it's not genuine, brave, or interesting. Everyone might like it, but very few will love it. Few will be passionate about it. And personally, I'd rather have some people be passionate about what I do and others not get it or even actively dislike it than do stuff that never goes into the territory of messy or brave. Messy and brave is where the good work, the bold work, the interesting work happens. And if we're not in the game to be interesting, then we're just passing time, waiting for death. Wow, that was dramatic. I don't care. I'm leaving it in. Deal. Also, it's not a bad thing to be scared when you're doing creative work. Just as Elizabeth Gilbert says in her book, Big Magic, allow fear to come with you on this journey. To be honest, you can hardly prevent it from coming along. It'll throw itself through the passenger side window if you try to peel out of the driveway without it. Just make sure it's in the back seat with a coloring book and crayons. You do not want to let fear drive the car. It will take you straight to the safe, boring places, and no one learns anything there. Wherever you fall on the spectrum of magic-aligned to craft-aligned, it doesn't matter. One is not better than the other. They're just different. You're fine right where you are. You will always look somewhere else on the spectrum and think you might be a better writer over there, but it's not true. You are exactly where you are supposed to be. That doesn't mean if you're craft-aligned, you don't need to engage with magic, or that if you're magic-aligned, you can get along without craft. It just means that there's nothing wrong with where you are. You still have to limber up and reach outside your comfort zone to pull the part of your story that comes from the space where you are less aligned, as I did. It took almost 20 years. I stopped writing fiction for about six of them, and I'm sharing what I've learned with you so that you don't have to stop. 
But it's important that you understand why craft, what I've taught you in this book, matters. Yes, it exists in service to magic, but it doesn't make craft any less important. Is Ginger Rogers any less important than Fred Astaire? No. They're different. They work together. And together, they're a miracle. Think of it like a performance. Magic is the main act, but if it doesn't have a stage to dance upon, the only people who will see it and understand what's going on will be in the front. And that's great, but it screws over the rest of your audience that would also like to enjoy the show, but can't because no one considered their perspective when designing the experience. Imagine being at a show without a stage in a space where the performance is level with the floor and the seats don't rise up on an incline to give everyone equal access. Do you want to be in that audience? Knowing this amazing show is happening, but you don't have access to it? No, you're going to leave that show a few minutes in. Because if you don't have access to what's happening, then you might as well get the grocery shopping done, right? Conversely, do you, as an audience member, want to be in a theater where the stage is beautifully crafted, could hold up a whole line of stomping elephants, and all the seats rise on a perfect incline, but no one is doing anything? The company of players come out and they all point to the stage and say, well, you look at that craftsmanship. And you're like, great, so what? You're leaving that theater too, probably quicker than the one with the great performance that you can't see or hear. This is what the House Story Works method is about. I'm teaching you how to build the stage so that you can make your dance visible, accessible, and captivating to the largest audience possible. You might be asking yourself, if craft is in service to magic and magic is the most important thing, why aren't you teaching me that? And the answer is I can't. Not yet. That's not the expertise I've built up. I know my magic, and I know what magic is when I see it in others, but your magic is so individual to you that I don't think I can teach you that. To help you gain access to your own magic, I recommend Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic and Neil Gaiman's Masterclass, The Art of Storytelling. I think they do some of the best work in accessing and understanding magic that I've ever seen. But me? I've just spent 19 years figuring out how to build the stage, and now that I know how it works and I've shared that with you, I'm going to spend the next little while getting back into the performance arena. See you there.